Luke 2, verse 21. For those of you that were here last week, that um, passage sounds familiar, perhaps, because we were in it last week as well. We will be spending this week and next week sort of in Luke 2, more or less using it as a jump-off point. I'm always reluctant to do this. But there are at least a few people in the church that tell me they like it, so I persist. Um, I want to park on a few points that did not come up last week. Last week we exposited the passage. We understood Simeon and Simeon receiving uh, the little Christ and then Anna and the words that were mentioned there. And I encouraged you last week through that message not to lose your focus, not to lose your joy. We're living in, in di- difficult, dark days, days that are getting darker. We're, we're not exactly suffering right now as Christians in, in the country, but the days are getting darker. Uh, our society is not getting better. Our, our government is not restraining sin. And as the days get darker, we remember that Jesus Christ shined into dark days and that he is yet shining into the darkness of days through the light of life. But as, as we walked through these concepts last week, I, I skipped a few points of culture and of doctrine that I wanted to bring up this morning. First, Mary's days of purification, then speaking of the name of Jesus, the name that was given to him, and then next week we're actually going to have kind of a part two where I'm going to draw some links between what we see here culturally in the Jewish days of circumcision and what we understand today about what is prevalent around here, some of the liturgical traditions, particularly of infant baptism. And so over the next couple of weeks, the, the, the sermons are going to be a little bit more academic. They're going to be a little bit more um, focused. They're going to ask you to engage your mind a little bit more. I'm not just going to be explaining the text. And I do this from time to time. And I trust that it will be a blessing to you this morning as we preach the first half of this message on Jewish culture and doctrine. And the first concept that I would like to reference this morning, as I mentioned, was Jewish purification. This comes from our, our study through this passage in Luke chapter 2, verses 20 through two, through 22, excuse me, through 24, which says this, and when the days of her, that would be Mary's, purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, that would be Jesus, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, we spoke briefly last time about the law of purification, but let's talk about it in just a little bit more depth. We find the expectations for the law of purification in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And you can feel free to turn there. We'll be there for just a few moments, but I will have it up on the screen as well. And in Leviticus 12, verses 1 through 6, we read this. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman have conceived seed and born a man-child, then she shall be unclean seven days, according to the days of the separation for her infirmity, shall she be unclean. And in the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, and she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days, another thirty-three days. She shall touch no hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. But if she bear a maid child, that would be a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks. 
as in her separation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying three score, which would be sixty and six days. So within the scope of Hebrew ceremonial law, there were certain actions which would make a person unclean, ceremonially unclean, to offer worship unto the Lord. Uh, now, take note that this does not mean that the person had done anything wrong. It did not reflect upon their morality. But we must understand something about God. We talked about it just a little bit this morning in Sunday school as well. What we, what we need to remember about God is that God is holy. God is holy. And, and we must understand something else about God. God is unchanging. It's a theological term which uh, you might hear floating around called immutable. He is immutable. He is unchanging. The, the law, the law of Moses was given to a specific earthly nation for a definitive time and under a unique covenant called the Mosaic Covenant. But the Bible tells us quite clearly in Romans chapter 7 verse 14 that the law is spiritual, that it is holy. So though we are not under the law, we have been redeemed from the law and Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law, yet the law has an incredible capacity to teach us things of Christ, to teach us things of God, to show us things about His character. It was created to reflect in no uncertain terms the character of God himself. And in God's economy, various activities, including any which involved coming into contact with blood or bodily fluids, would temporarily disqualify a person in Israel under the Mosaic law from coming into the presence of God, from giving sacrifices on the altar in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And let me make this very clear. Uh, this did not inherently mean that the person had done something wrong or sinful, right? Giving birth to a child is not something that God regards as a sinful thing. Uh, it's, it's not wrong for a woman to do that. Neither was coming into contact with a dead body. I mean, unless you're the one that made him dead. But if you're just uh, under the law, coming in contact with a dead body was, a, was, was an offense ceremonially. Now, now if, you, if, if you just came into contact with a dead body, you didn't do anything wrong. Maybe you had to lift that dead body, whatever it might be. These things would not make a person sinful, but they would make a person unclean. Sin is not the issue here. The issue here in the law was, was God. God is holy, and man is quite inherently not holy. Even those things which are not wrong, even in those things, we, we have simply put fallen short of the glory of God. And so we find that a woman, by virtue of giving birth to a child, uh, was rendered ceremoni ceremonially unclean for a period of 40 days. Now with a man, it was broken into 7 days and 33 days. With a woman, it was broken into 2 weeks, 14 days, and then 66 days. And we come to this matter of timing. You notice that the length of purification for a man-child is indeed 40 days shorter than the length of purification for a female child. Now, why would this be? Is a woman inherently more unclean than a man? Is that why? Well, absolutely not. The uncleanness standard following the birth of the child was attached both to the mother and to the child. So for the sake of the mother, the uncleanness would persist for that typical 40 days. Now in the case of the child, notice what the text said. The text said that the child, would be, the child and the mother would be unclean for seven days. This was standard. This was the standard for, for many things. Seven days of purification. One week. And then after that point, the child, the man-child, would be circumcised. 
And we've talked about it a little bit over the past few weeks. We'll talk about it again next Sunday. Circumcision ushered the child into the covenant. Ushered the child into the Abrahamic covenant, into Israel, into the people. And so the child would be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, in the case of the man, the circumcision would take place, obviously not for young women. And on that eighth day, the man-child would not just be circumcised, but he would be, in order to be circumcised, ceremonially cleansed at that time. And so because he was ceremonially cleansed at that time, he doesn't need the 40 days of purification. So from that point on, there would be the extra 30 days. The mother would go through the full 40 days of purification, and then she could take that child and dedicate him in the temple. Now, this was not the case with a female child. With a female child, there was no ceremony that was done early in order to purify her. So there was the 40 days for the mother, and then there would be an extra 40 days for the child. And that would bring us to the 80-day point where they would be ceremonially cleansed. I'm having trouble with that word this morning. They would be ceremonially cleansed, at which point they could bring the child to the temple or tabernacle in Leviticus and present that child unto the Lord. And that's the second thing I would like us to consider this morning before moving on is the name. And this is what's going to cover most of our time. The purification, I didn't really have enough time last week to cover it, so I wanted to cover it this morning. But the name that was given to Jesus, this is where I want to park. This has become a little bit of a controversy in various Christian circles who feel compelled to, if I can put it this way, strain at gnats and swallow camels. But it's perhaps worth our time to introduce you to this conflict so that you can have a frame of reference if it ever comes up in one of your circles. And and the controversy surrounds the name of Jesus himself. Those of you that have been here on Tuesday night, uh, we've talked about this a little bit. But in verse 21, we read this of Luke 2. When the eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angels before he was conceived in the womb. The name Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, is an English translation of a Latin word, which is the translation of a Greek word, Jesus. And that Greek word is the translation of a Hebrew word, Yahashua, which we say in English as Joshua. Now, follow the train of thought here, and I'll walk you through it. During his life, the Bible does not explicitly say which title Jesus went by. We are reading in the New Testament. The New Testament is written in Greek. So Jesus' name was rendered in the Greek, Jesus. But in the Hebrew, that name Jesus was Yahashua or Yeshua. Now, it seems reasonable, seeing that he was a Hebrew man living in Israel at the time, that that indeed was his name. That as he walked around and people spoke with him and and, and people interacted with him, that by and large, when they interacted with him, they did not call him Jesus, they called him Yahashua or Yeshua. This concept is substantiated by the fact that every reference to to Jesus in the New Testament is not speaking of Messiah, and I don't know if you know this. But if you have a King James Bible, there are at least two references in your King James Bible to a Jesus 
that is not Jesus of Nazareth. One of these is in Acts chapter 7, verse 44 and 45, where we read this. This is Stephen speaking. And he says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David. So Stephen, this is just before his martyrdom, and he is preaching, and he's preaching about the, the fathers, the church fathers, and as he's preaching, he is giving an account of Moses and of Joshua, of God giving the, the expectations of the tabernacle to Moses, and then of them bringing that expectation into the possession that would be into the promised land, into the possession of the Gentiles. And notice who Stephen says was brought in to the promised land, that they were brought in with Jesus, Jesus. This is not Jesus Christ being spoken of here. This is not Jesus of Nazareth being spoken of here. This is Jesus, the son of Nun, Joshua, the son of Nun. And this is not the only time Joshua, the son of Nun, is referenced in the New Testament as Jesus. We also find it in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Speaking of the same idea, the same time, again, the author of Hebrews says, He limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, for if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day. Within that context, if you look in the context, it's speaking of the rest of Canaan. It's speaking of the rest of the promised land. And Hebrews is specifically saying, if that Jesus had given rest, if Joshua, if Joshua had given them rest, then they wouldn't have spoken of another day. <clears throat> Excuse me. If Canaan was the final rest of God's people, then David had no basis wherewith to speak of another day of rest. But David spoke of another day of, of rest because... The rest of Canaan was not the final rest of God's people. Indeed, these passages would not make much sense if we were speaking about Jesus of Nazareth, who did give rest, who did bring God's people into rest. But if we understand this as Joshua, the son of Nun, who brought God's people into the promised land, then it makes perfect sense. Now, when you look at other translations, you see some of them use the word Joshua instead of Jesus here. The King James, however, is, is extremely tra uh, consistent in translational quality. Throughout the New Testament, they maintain a loyalty to the Greek transliterations of proper names rather than changing to their Hebrew equivalents. And we see this all throughout. Now, we've all contended with this. Um, we've all contended with this some, right, where we come to a name in the New Testament and the Old Testament equivalent, and we have to try to remember who it is. Elijah is called in the New Testament Elias. Isaiah is called Isaias. Jonah is called Jonas. And Joshua is called, in fact, Jesus. And while this can be confusing, and it isn't necessary, per se, you see some translations that don't do this, and that's fine. This tells us something about the manner in which the King James was translated in that it was extremely consistent. They desired to take the Greek and to reflect it as, as purely as possible into the eyes of its readers. And, and for that, if their goal is simply to translate faithfully the undergirding text, indeed, um, they did a good job. They maintained such consistency 
uh, in this effort that they include references to Joshua as Jesus, because indeed, Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus the son of Nun, Joshua, they, they, they had the same name. They both had the same name, Yahashua. In Western culture today, it would be stunning to find a person named Jesus, right? It's just not a name we use very often. You find it in Hispanic culture, Jesus, quite regularly, but you don't see it very often in, in Western culture. And we do that perhaps uh, out of reverence for the name of Jesus, and that's good and that's fine. And, and yet the name Joshua is, is a common name, and, and in fact, that was the name of Christ. It was Joshua. Say, Pastor, where are you going with this? Just stick with me, all right? And we'll, we'll, uh, we'll show you where we're going with this this morning. All of this culminates in the conclusion that the name, as in the letters that form the word by which Messiah was referenced, J-E-S-U-S, is not really the operative issue when it comes to the Bible speaking of the name of Christ. But it has become a big issue in some circles, and this is why I speak of it this morning. One of the most prevalent movements floating around that demands some of these distinctions, it has crept over into conservative Christianity uh, as some form of what's often called the Hebrew Roots Movement. And in the Hebrew Roots Movement, you find them trying to get back to the law, trying to find, f- find them getting back to the Hebrew roots of the Christian faith, and in doing so, they, they tend to shackle themselves back to the yoke of the law. And within various elements of these circles they contend that the name of Christ is Yahashua or Yeshua and that if you don't use that name for Christ, you are not using the name of Christ and that all of the promises that are invoked by using the name of Christ are invalid because you're not actually using the name of Christ. And in certain places, this can touch fundamental Christianity as well, which is why we speak of it. So important has this been to certain sects and certain people that they have created what's called the restored name King James Version, where they restore all of the names of Christ to their proper name of Yeshua. Within many of these movements, they regard anybody who does not use the name Yeshua or Yahashua, depending on who you talk to, they regard them as apostate. They regard them as outside the faith. They may even see them as unbelievers. They state that because Jesus said to be baptized in his name, to call upon his name, that if you're not baptized in the name of Yeshua, then it is not valid. Now, another reason why this whole thing matters is because there are movements that use the name of Jesus in interesting ways. They, they see the name of Jesus almost as an idol. They, idol, uh, they, they, they idolize the name of Jesus, the, J-E-S-U-S, the, the name, not just, not, we'll talk about that. One such movement is called the Word of Faith movement, also referenced as the New Apostolic Reformation, um, other charismatic movements that have gone in this direction. Uh, The Word of Faith movement teaches that words have power. Uh, We oftentimes perhaps reference it as name it and claim it in our circles. Positive confession. I could spend weeks teaching you about these movements, and if you're very interested, I can point you to some very good resources that can help you understand the dangers of Word of faith, name it and claim it, Um, New Apostolic Reformation. If you see anything about those, offshoot of the new order of the latter reign. Um, Very dangerous. Finding its way into mainstream evangelical Christianity, many charismatic movements, Roman Catholicism as well. 
Uh, we speak specifically, however, of an offshoot of this called the health and wealth movement. And within the health and wealth gospel, proponents of this, such as Joel Olstein, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, Creflo Dollar, literally hundreds more, um, they preach that spiritual or faith-filled words invoke supernatural power. They teach that it is always God's will for a Christian to be physically and materially prosperous as long as you have enough faith. And within this teaching, um, they teach that the words you speak actually invoke power, which is common in cults, right? In demonic realms. That the words that we speak invoke supernatural power, and one of those words that they particularly key in on is Jesus. That the name of Jesus, they say the name of Jesus has power, and I agree it does, if we're speaking properly of what it means, what the name of Jesus is. I knew a young man who was deep into this movement. He was a roommate of mine at college many years ago, and he had come from Nigeria. And Nigeria has what's called the Winner's Church there. Very charismatic. And the Winner's Church is a church of 50,000, and it's a Ponzi scheme. It's a pyramid scheme. It's top-down. That's what all of these are about. It's about money. And in, in, these, uh, in this Winner's Church, of course, they, they regularly invoked the name of Jesus. And he would tell me all of these stories about the things that the name of Jesus did, invoking the name of Jesus, and how, how um, just invoking the name of Jesus... I mean, we're talking about people that had no... no, no love for God, no loyalty to God, but, but as if the name of Jesus was a lucky rabbit's foot that would get them out of trouble, that would get them money, that would get them these things. What they have done there is they have elevated the five letters of the word, of the name Jesus, to idolatry. And they are using his name as an idol in order to bring about advantages for their lives. They have turned the name of Jesus into an idol, and if the five letters that make up the English version of the name Messiah, whose actual name in the English would be Joshua, or in the Greek would be Jesus, or in the Hebrew would be Yahashua, uh, it gets all muddied. So what is this about? Why spend time on this? What is the name of Jesus? And this is very important. When the Bible speaks of the name of Jesus, and we've talked about this many times at church before, it's speaking of the essence of who Jesus Christ is. His character, his words, his actions, everything. To speak in Jesus' name, to pray in Jesus' name, to act in Jesus' name. None of these things have anything to do with J-E-S-U-S, -S, the letters. It has everything to do with the power behind the one that we call Jesus. It has everything to do with the person of the incarnate second person of the Trinity. The name of Jesus is indeed a beautiful name. It invokes in many of us the very essence of the redemptive work. But the name of the Son of God is not just J-E-S-U-S -S alone. In Isaiah 6-9, he's called Wonderful, Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 6, 9 says this will be His name. In Malachi 4, 2, He's called the Son of Righteousness. S-U-N, 
That's that day spring on, up from on high that we've talked about time and again. In Revelation 5, 5, he's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. God proclaimed his own name in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. In Exodus 33, 19, he's speaking to Moses. And Moses says, I want you to show me your glory. And God says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, he proclaims that name. And this is what he proclaims. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. This is, this is the name of, of our God. This is the name of our Savior. This is His name. The whole thing, all of that highlighting, that's his name. Revelation 19, verses 11 and 12. And I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and he that sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. A name which no man knew. Interesting. In the Old Testament, we find on two occasions a similar thing. We find in the days of Jacob, as he wrestles with the Lord. We looked at it in Sunday school just a couple of weeks ago. Jacob's wrestling with the Lord, and Jacob says, what is your name? And he wouldn't tell him his name. Mano the angel of the Lord appears before Manoah, Samson's father. And Manoah says, what is your name? And he says, why do you ask my name, seeing it is a secret? And then we find in Revelation 19 that this one who will come, whose name is faithful and true, will also have a name upon him which no man knows but he himself. The name of Jesus is who he is and what he has done. His character, his work, his essence. And this is very important. When I pray, and, and we do this here at Legacy Baptist Church, I typically close my prayers in with this phrase, in Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the fact that I said in Jesus' name at the end of my prayer does not mean I came to him in his name, inherently, intrinsically. Anybody can utter the word Jesus and anybody can say a prayer and put in Jesus' name, amen, at the end. But, but we, we know what the Word of God says. We know that the Bible says that we are to pray in Christ's name and we talk about this a little bit more in just a moment. And so we put that in there, but, but what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? What does it mean to serve in Jesus' name? To come to God in the name of Jesus... All the names that we mentioned, Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, He who is faithful and true, He that is the Son of Righteousness, that is Jesus' name. So with this in mind, understand now some of the important aspects of the name of Christ in the Bible. And as we understand what it means, 
what Jesus' name is. That it's not just J-E-S-U-S, but it is the very essence of who he is. It's his character. It's his message. This changes how we understand the gospel. This changes how we pray. This changes how we serve. In Romans 10, Paul is in the midst of a three-chapter exposition on the place of national Israel within the new covenant. And we've talked about that a little bit for those of you that have been here before. We'll talk more about it next time we're together as we talk about infant baptism and some of the history behind it. I talked about it in my Galatians series uh, in the PM not long ago. If you want to get on to LegacyBaptistChurch.net, you can listen to those sermons. One of the primary points which Paul makes within his argument in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is that in Christ there are no distinctions between the Jews and the Gentiles, male or female, bond or free. And within this context, Paul, quoting from the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 32, says this in Romans 10, verses 12 and 13. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, as I said, this is a quotation from a prophecy in Joel which recognized in the last days that the offer of salvation by grace through faith would extend unto all peoples, irrespective of any national tie with the physical nation of Israel. Whether you were circumcised or not, male or female, Jew or Gentile, all peoples would receive that offer of salvation. But notice the standard by which Joel and Paul present a person to be saved from their sins. To call upon the name of the Lord. Now, we talked a couple of weeks ago about that phrase, calling upon. It doesn't actually mean to cry out unto. There's another Greek word that means that. This doesn't mean that. This means to entitle, to invoke, to give him the name that is his. To, to acknowledge him to be who he is, is literally what this is saying. And so if the acknowledgement comes for the name of the Lord... Well, what are we acknowledging? Are we just acknowledging J-E-S-U-S? Are we acknowledging that these five letters that make up this English transliteration of a, of a Latin phrase, of a Greek phrase, of a Hebrew word, are we just acknowledging that he exists? Well, no. To call upon the name of the Lord, knowing what it, knowing what it means, knowing what the name of the Lord is, it means that we are invoking, we are, we are calling upon the entirety of Christ. His person, His work, His message. That to call upon the name of the Lord is to acknowledge that Jesus Christ's person, work, and message are true. And to receive it unto oneself. Who Jesus is, the Son of God. What Jesus taught, submission to the Father. What Jesus did, die upon the cross as the final atonement for our sins. Raised from the dead in victory over sin and death and hell. All of that is, is Jesus' name. All of that is the essence of who He is and what He did. And to call upon His name is not to cry out all of these facts, but rather to entitle Him. Rather to say, yes, Jesus, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the one who is all of that. And who did all of that. To call on Jesus' name is to acknowledge that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is everything that he claimed to be and did everything he claimed to do. In a word, it means to believe on Christ. And if we're not careful, we will be tempted to add unnecessary layers to the simplicity 
of the gospel. Now, I don't know uh, how many people go off in one direction or another. Uh, the gospel is something that's so under attack by Satan today. There's so many, it's so muddied, it's so confused. Um, but, but there are people who believe that if, if you don't call out audibly, call out because of that verse, you cannot be saved. Jesus, you have to cry the name. Well, that's not what the name is. That's not what that means. And that's what I want us to, to gather today. I want us to, to add that layer of understanding as to what the name of Christ is. When we understand that the name of Jesus to be the whole of Christ's message and that to call upon Him is, is simply to give Him the title that is due unto Him, those layers of, compl of complication fall away. And it gets even better. I mentioned earlier the concept of praying in Jesus' name. Uh, this is something that is done regularly. As I mentioned, we even do it here. Why do I do it here? Well, I've actually tried to get myself out of the habit, but have you ever tried to get yourself out of the habit of that one? That's a hard thing to do. And it's not that it's wrong to do, but it could give the wrong impression or leave the wrong message. So I struggle with that. We work on it. The word... Amen simply means verily, truly, let it be so. But we say in Jesus' name, amen, oftentimes at the end of our prayers. Jesus taught in John 14, verses 12 through 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. And so people say, okay, I put Jesus at the end of my prayer, and boom, it's mine. John 15, verse 16. Jesus said, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. Speaking of election, election is always speaking of purpose, not of salvation. In the scriptures, election is unto a purpose. Notice the purpose. Uh, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you to be saved? No, that ye should go forth, uh, go and bring forth fruit, hmm. and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Now we connect asking the Father in his name to bearing fruit. Why would that be? John 16, 23 and 24. Saw John 14, John 15, now John 16. Jesus says, And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. And that day ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. In all of these verses, spanning three chapters, Jesus Christ's most intimate and personal time of teaching to his disciples. He tells them that the key to petitioning the Father successfully is to come in the name of Jesus. To come in Jesus' name. So we put in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers. But, but we must understand that saying in Jesus' name is not what it means to come in Jesus' name. Jesus is not simply J-E-S-U-S. -S. It is the essence of all that Christ is. 
A proper understanding then of this promise is that the Father answers the prayers of those who have aligned themselves with the person, work, and character of Christ. Who are coming aligned with Christ to the Father. Who are coming as a child of God, obviously one who is in Christ, thus into the throne of God. And this is what the Bible teaches in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. I invoked it in my prayer this morning. Therefore, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. The authority and the power by which we enter into the presence of God is the blood of Jesus Christ, the name of Christ, the veil of his flesh. Now, is it wrong to put in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer? No, it's not. As long as you and those listening understand that it is not that statement. It's a good reminder, is it not? That we come in Jesus' name. It's a good reminder uh, of, of the authority through which we come to the Father. But, but we need to understand what we're doing here. We need to understand that we are not invoking some sort of lucky rabbit's foot by putting Jesus' in the name of our, Jesus name in our prayer. We are praying in Christ's name name through his authority through that which he has accomplished for us on the cross through the blood of Christ that we have boldness to enter into the holy of holies in Christ's name so we are saved by calling upon the name of the Lord we pray in the name of Jesus we also serve in the name of Jesus Jesus taught in Mark 9:41 for whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. had a young man uh, a few weeks ago. I was um, in a Christian environment, and he held the door. And every time a person said thank you, he said, in the name of Christ, in the name of Christ. Every person, in the name of Christ, in the name of Christ. And what he was doing was this. He was, he was serving others in Jesus' name. And, of course, it's always a little bit awkward when you, when you hear that. It's just a kid that's repeating in the name of Christ over and over again. But, but, but he, the concept is, is, is good, as long as we understand what it is. That everything that we're doing when we're serving others, we, we're doing it in the name of Christ. But that doesn't mean we have to say in the name of Christ every time we do something. What it does mean, however, is that we need to do it motivated by love and obedience to Christ. Doing it in the name of Christ. And this matters because as we consider Luke chapter 2 verse 21 and following. Jesus' name was given to him by the angel before his birth. Jehovah's salvation is what Yahashua means. And this is what Jesus did. His name, the physical name, Jesus, reflects his action. He saves. But what we don't need to do is strive about words to no profit. 2 Timothy 2.14. Paul says, Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Men and women, we, we live in an age where there's so many resources at our disposal. 
And people get so caught up in all of these resources that they can be tempted to strive at words to no profit. And this is one of those areas where that can touch our Christian life. Where we take something and we blow it out of proportion and we add layers and oftentimes we're doing so that, so that we can judge others and feel good about ourselves. We add layers to the gospel. We add layers to sound doctrine that have no profit. And, I mean, this is one of many, of course. But I felt led to bring this one up this morning. It's come up several times in my experiences. I may have more than you being a pastor. But in the next verse, Paul says this. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Taking the word of God and rightly interpreting it. Rightly understanding it. Not losing the forest for the trees. Not as we mentioned earlier and Jesus told the Pharisees. Not straining at gnats but swallowing camels. The essence of this message might seem a little bit trivial. But the underlying necessity cannot be understated. We live in a Christian world that is awash with pettiness unto no profit. And the deeper we get into the things of Word of God, the more we seek to know, the greater the temptation to major on the minors and minor on the majors. And when we major on the minors, we create false points of division. Now, there are plenty of legitimate causes for us to divide in the realm of the religious. And the last thing we need is to create false points of division around misunderstandings of issues or words. So the call is for us to never cease to learn, to be patient in our understanding. And so let me just encourage you this morning, with all that you know, as we close, with a couple of ways in which the name of the Lord really touch us on a daily basis. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul says this Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' obedience to the cross gave him a name, the Scriptures tell us. Now, he already had the name Jesus. He already had the name the Son of God. But Jesus' humility and submission brought him exaltation so that the person of Jesus of Nazareth shall for all eternity be exalted to the extent that there is a coming a day when every knee shall bow before him and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. But to all who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, we talked about this a little bit this morning in our Sunday school hour, he has placed his name on us. Has he not? He calls us not servant, but friend. We call God the Father our Father by the spirit of adoption. 
And Jesus wrote this to the Church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3. He says in verse 12, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. As those who have placed their trust in Christ by grace through faith alone, we, we are a new creation. Second Corinthians 5.17 tells us that. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things are become new. As we have studied this morning the name of Christ, we understand from the name of Christ that it is not just the term Jesus. It is everything that he is. It's the essence of his person, his character, his work. And by virtue of justification, Christ's righteousness, His name is placed on you so that you bear the name of Christ. Now, you might do that literally. If you walk around calling yourself a Christian, you are bearing, little Christ is the name of that, you are bearing the name of Christ. But that's not what it means to bear the name of Christ. To bear the name of Christ means to carry with you Christ's person, work, message. And if that's who you are in Christ, the question is, are you being that in Christ? Is your lifestyle consistent with Christ? Do you actually carry around with you the name of Christ as you are in Christ? Is what you said to your friends and your parents and your siblings and your spouse and your boss this week consistent with bearing the name of Christ? Is how you interacted with the strangers and your neighbors and all that you interacted with this week consistent of the name of Christ? Is what you did in your off time, in the, in, in the privacy of your own house, consistent with the name of Christ? See, because we bear the name of Christ. And the name of Christ is not just Jesus. J-E-S-U-S. The name of Christ is everything that is our Savior. So, as we go from here today, and I know this message has been unique, may I encourage you, may I exhort you this morning to remember that you bear the name of Christ. Take that name with you and everything that it means and live it. And in doing so, others will indeed see Christ in you, which is the point. That's the purpose. Let's pray as we close.